check.
So what I Hey, hey. All right. Well, good evening, everyone. Thank you for coming. Got a good subject at hand tonight. So, um, and tonight might be a little bit different because uh, I want to allow, we, we talked as a team and um, do we need to put it a little louder? Do you mind? It's the, the white fader that says Mike. <laughs> That doesn't make sense. Okay, it, it shouldn't be up there. It should be further down. All right, is that any better? Hello, hello, okay. Okay, it sounds like we're good. Um, we will uh, maybe not go into small groups. So we might, uh, we, we talked as a team and for the next few um, evenings, we wanna have a little bit more time to allow you to ask questions that you might have about some of the subjects. You know, we've, we've dropped a lot of, uh, of serious theological stuff. And uh, there's a lot to chew on, a lot to think about. Um, we, we would love the opportunity to, you know, field questions that you might have and, and try to answer them. So you'll know, be thinking about that. There's some note cards on the table. Is that what that's for? Maybe jot down a question you might have and 
feel free to raise your hand throughout and ask your questions as, as we go through some of this. So, um, all right, well, let's, let's uh, open up in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for your word and how you speak to um, everything that we need and that we, all that we need to know is there. And Lord, we want to be, we want to be captured by that and we want our attention to be there. So help us tonight as we think about these things and um, pray that we would find our hearts at, as we look at this together, just welling up with worship for you, gratitude, um, amazement at your grace as we talk about your sovereign mercy and election. So help us to understand these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'm going to begin by um, reading the paragraph on page 79, just the way that the chapter starts out. As Grudem says, this is correct, there has been much controversy inside and outside of the church regarding the doctrine of election, sometimes also called predestination. We may define election as follows. Election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. Many have thought that this doctrine defined in this way is troubling and unfair. Before jumping to conclusions, however, it's important to see where this definition and therefore this doctrine comes from. So um, when we think about this on your, uh, there's a handout going around. Um, if you have one, you could look at that. When we think about election and where it stands in what is called the order of salvation. So this is how God saves us um, in a sort of chronological way, when we, the way we think about it. So election would be from eternity past. Um, from eternity past, God has chosen whom he's going to save. And we'll look at the scriptures that teach that. And then in time, the, the gospel goes out, and that's gospel call. The spirit um, opens our hearts, opens our blind eyes, and unstops our deaf ears so that we can you know, he, he takes out the heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, produces life, raises the dead person to life. That's all regeneration or what we call conversion. Um, and then kind of simultaneous with that is justification and adoption. We are put in right standing with God through the work that Jesus did on the cross for us. We're adopted into God's family because now we have been justified through the righteousness of Jesus. Um, sanctification is the process of becoming more and more like Christ in our actual lives. And perseverance is becoming more and more like Christ and doing so all the way to the end. God ensures that those whom he saves make it home. He keeps them to the end. Um, followed by death, followed by glorification in which we are united with God in heaven. So that's, um, those are historical uh, categories, traditional theological categories of how the church has articulated what happens in salvation. So election is sort of that first step. But when we think about election, um, a, a lot of times our struggle with it comes back to um, an inadequate understanding of the doctrine of sin. And so if we think about depravity, and we go back to that chapter on what the Bible teaches about sin, you could say election is a logical necessity if the doctrine of total depravity is true. In other words, if man is totally depraved and incapable of coming to God on his own, how will anyone be saved? Um, so some have tried to explain this um, in, in different ways. So you may have heard the word Calvinism 
Arminianism. So these, these are words that come from um, old guys from 500 years ago, John Calvin, um, Jacobus Arminius was, was our, Jacobus Arminius was articulating a certain view of sin um, that said that, yeah, the fall affected most things, but it didn't affect that part of the human heart that exercises faith in God. So sure, sin is in the world. Um, many Arminians would, would go on to deny even original sin, that we're not born in sin, um, that we inherit sin at some point later in life. And uh, I wonder if those people ever owned a baby um, because it doesn't seem like <laughs> owned, <laughs> had a baby. Uh, yeah, we don't, we don't buy and own and sell. But you, you wonder if they ever had in their possession, like actually had in their possession a baby. Because um, you don't have to teach sin, do you? But, but the Bible affirms it anyway, that we're, we're dead in sin. We're born in Adam. As a result of Adam, we are born into sin. But the Arminian view says that there's a section of the human heart that was not affected by the fall. And that's the part that man exercises freely of his own free will by which he can come to Jesus on his own and ask to be saved, at which point Jesus will say, yes, um, thank you for asking. Uh, yes, I will save you because you asked. So, um, but the, the Bible's teaching of the doctrine of sin, and this was really articulated throughout the period of the Reformation, which is why what we're talking about in terms of historical theology could be called his um, uh, reform theology or Calvinism, is that total depravity, meaning all of man's being is affected by the fall, even our will, such that, do, you know, do we have free will? Yes, we have free will, and every time we will freely choose to do things our own way and not come to God. Freely do that every time on our own. Um, so, Yes, and, and we'll get into this more a little bit later. Um, but the Reformed view, and which we believe is the biblical view, is that um, all of man's being is affected by the fall. We, we do not, cannot, will not come to God on our own apart from outside intervention, apart from God changing our heart. So the picture is running as far and, and fast as we can away from God and God turning us in our path and bringing us to himself. It's not, um, it's not the place of neutrality, much less the, the place of uh, a pure island in the heart of man that was not affected by the fall, by which he can come to God on his own. Now, all of man's being, his whole will is bent away from God, apart from God intervening and doing something about that. So, under the Arminian view, anyone can be saved. God doesn't determine who will be saved and who won't be. He just presents the offer, but it's ultimately up to the person to say yes or no. But in that view, God doesn't ensure that anyone will actually get saved because after all, it's up to that person to actually go ahead and get saved um, and get around to it because he might not. And, and after all, uh, maybe nobody would. And God has no determination of that. He has no control over that. He ensures the offer is made to all, but it's ultimately up to each person to do something about it. Um, so that's an Arminian view set over and against a, a Calvinistic or Reformed view. Now, from a human perspective, 
it, it sure looks like that from our perspective, which is why we need the scripture to help us understand what's going on behind the scenes and in our hearts. Um, but the Bible's teaching on the fall and, de and depravity and the, of the human heart, we know that no one will turn to, to God on his own. We must be acted on from the outside. We need a miracle outside of ourselves if anyone is to ever turn to God. Um, so God's, when we think of God's initiative in salvation, so if all of humanity is running hard and fast away from God and some people are going to get saved. And how are they going to get saved? Because did they just wise up? Did they on their own? Or did it take some sort of outside intervention? And if it took some outside intervention from God, and God himself, who does he do that for? And who does he not do that for? So that's what brings us to our subject tonight. God's free sovereign choice to do that for some and not for everybody and therefore not others is called election. So let's look at some of these verses that referenced this on your sheet. Um, Acts 13, 48. Can somebody read that one? Let's just have y'all read these. Somebody read Acts 13, 48, please. Okay. So what's the key phrase there? We're appointed by, by whom? Did they appoint themselves? Or is God the agent in the appointing? That God determined that these Gentiles would hear the word and receive it and believe it. Um, God acted upon their sinful human heart so that they would come to believe. Okay, next, Ephesians 1.4. Good, good. So how, if, if, the, if what the Bible teaches about sin, again, is true, how will anyone be saved? Well, here it is right here. Before the foundations of the world, he chose us in him, that we should be holy and blameless before him. And that's not just, he, he chose, see, I used to have a view that said, well, what that means is that God wished that all of humanity would be holy and blameless. That, that was his decision from the beginning, from before time. He, he chose that humanity should be blameless and holy. That's what the choosing was. Um, not that he would choose some and not others, um, trying to preserve for me a, a, a sense of uh, credit, I suppose. But if, if you keep reading, um, it's not just a general wish on behalf of God, but it's, there's particularity here in verse 5. In love, he predestined us. Now, is that the whole world, every human that ever lived? No. Um, so you see the particularity in there. Now, the word predestined comes up. Um, sometimes people see these as synonyms, predestination, election. To, to predestine is a word that just means to just, to determine something beforehand. So Ephesians 2.10 um, works that God determined beforehand that we might walk into. So you could say predestination is kind of an umbrella term, but election is the particular act of God in choosing whom he's going to save. Um, 
we see it in Romans 8, 29. Um, I'll read this one. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. So there, that conformity is that sanctification, is that becoming more and more like Jesus. This was part of what God predetermined beforehand. Um, using the example of how God chose Jacob over Esau, Paul says in Romans 9, they weren't even born yet. They had done nothing good or bad. But in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. In other words, we see God determining beforehand, apart from any action of the person, that this is what is going to come about. Um, then making the argument that inclusion in the visible community of Israel does not guarantee salvation and stating that even some of the people of Israel were not saved. Um, he says it in Romans eleven seven. what then Israel failed to obtain it, what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So here Paul makes a distinction between the elect and Israel, meaning there was at one time in redemptive history, the inclusion in the community of God was marked by physical signs and outward things as well as the human heart and what God did in the heart, namely um, being an Israelite. Uh, but under the new covenant, those things were no longer required. The, the new community is newly defined upon new terms, namely faith and trust in Jesus and the work that he did on the cross. So the elect is no longer determined by your attachment to Israel. In other words, you don't need to become Jewish to get saved anymore. Um, but now your inclusion, what, what makes someone elect is God's determination, and it's not on the basis of the outward inclusion in the community of Israel. That's a huge topic that much ink has been spilt over in the last 50 years. So um, not, there's a lot more there I'm, I'm just not going to get into. But another powerful picture of election is in Jesus' words in John 10, 16. Can somebody read that one? Yeah, very good. In fact, why don't you turn in your Bibles, if you have your Bible, turn to John 10, please. John 6, John 10, John 14 were the verses that I had to do the most wrestling with as I was coming to terms with this doctrine, because um, I started out uh, an Arminian and uh, arguing informed Arminian. And um, when I first got here in January of 1999, Pastor Billy was preaching through Romans, and he was in chapter 9, articulating a reformed Calvinistic view of Romans 9, and I'm sitting there going, yeah, here's all the reasons why it's wrong, and, and I'm arguing it and everything, and through the preaching uh, of Pastor Billy, through the book of Romans, and through Alice Brown's incredibly sharp mind, theological acumen, she challenged me. We wrote papers back and forth to each other. And through Pastor Billy's preaching and Alice Brown, um, I was won over to a view of God's sovereignty and salvation. <laughs> and a big thing that they pushed me towards was um, this in seeing John 6, John 10, John 14. Um, there's so much here. Um, but if you look this whole analogy about entering by the door, verse three, to him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, he calls his own sheep by name, he leads them out. 
when he has brought all out on his own, he goes before them. The sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they won't follow, but they will flee from him for they don't know the voice of the strangers. Uh, jump down to verse seven. Truly I say to you, I'm the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. The sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Okay, we're going to get to this. There's the universal call. If Jesus, if anyone enters by me, he will be saved. We're not stingy with the gospel. We don't think, well, it's only for some people. Jesus himself, who will moments later affirm election, says, if anyone, anyone enter, enter, please enter. The door is wide open. Enter. And as he's saying it in depravity, everybody is running in the opposite direction. You know, if you, if you need, if it helps to have a word image, Jesus is saying anyone who enters can be saved and no one's doing it. And so he's reaching out and grabbing them and saving them and bringing them in, not against their will either. And we'll see how he does that here in just a minute. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd. Sorry. Um, he, not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, leaves the sheep, and the wolf snatches and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. But I'm the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me, just as the father knows me. And I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Okay, now here's the election. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now, if we had time to look at it, this fold contextually is the Jewish fold, the Jewish audience who thought, no, we're the chosen people of God. And Jesus is looking at them and saying, no, I have other sheep that are not of this fold and I must bring them in and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it up from me. I lay it down my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, authority to take it up again. And this charge I received from my father. Jump down to verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 26. So the, the Jews gathered, they had a hard time with that. And Jesus said, I told you, you don't believe. The works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. These are hard <laughs> words of Jesus. We think um, that the reason you don't believe, I mean, we, we think the reason you're not part of the flock is because you don't believe. But Jesus, being all-knowing, is able to say, no, the reason you don't believe is because you're not part of the flock. In other words, he, he is essentially telling them you are not part of the sheep that are not of this fold that I plan to bring in. Now, we can never say that. We can never say that about anybody. Only Jesus can say, the reason you don't believe is because you're not elect. Jesus actually told somebody that. I mean, that was like, that was so hard for me to conceptualize. Like, what? But he knows, and he uniquely is able to say that. And of course, verse 31, they picked up stones again to stone him. I bet they did. Um, and it goes on and on. And, and then you jump over to uh, John uh, 14. Um,
well, I'm not going to get into that one. Anyway, you need to take a look at John 14 at some point. It's so good. Oh, man. Okay. So, obviously, when we talk about this, this can lead to problems. This can lead to good things. Like any theological subject that the Bible presents, there are ways to misuse and abuse it, misunderstand it, misapply it. There's hyper versions of what we're talking about that would not be biblical. And so we want to identify those and be aware of those so that we don't take this doctrine and allow it in our hearts to be turned into something that the Bible does not ever declare it to be. So let's think about that. What are some problems this can lead to? What are some good things this can lead to? You can take either, Vanessa. I love cans of worms. No. <laughs> Mm. even the ones that he chose are running to begin with you know like yeah 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 Yeah, sure. Yeah, there's definitely a, uh, an element of mystery that we all encounter here. So it's not like we can just fully explain the whole thing. In fact, when we think, well, why did God choose some and not others? Um, in some sense, as soon as we have an answer for that, we've missed the point. You know, I mean, the whole point is God did not choose anyone on the basis of anything that they did. It was his free, confusing, undeserved choice that he chose to save. Some. He didn't have to save anybody. And so being born in sin, being born in with a heart that is depraved and going away from God, um, we could have all rushed to our destruction and we would have rightly paid the price for that sin. Um, so the fact that God chooses to save any itself is a miracle. Why those people and not others? That's definitely a spot where we say, oh, what an amazing mystery that his grace has come to me. Um, but it, it, you know, we have to think when we think, well, but why not every, if he's going to save some, why not just save them all? Um, and Paul takes up this argument in Romans 9 and makes a, a pretty tough statement when he says, what if it was choosing to, I'll read it so I don't misquote it, choosing to make known 922, actually starting in 921, has a potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? What if God desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, so there's the category of justice, has endured with much patience, there's a tough phrase right here, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. So 
The alternative is universalism. If, if God saves everyone indiscriminately, then his justice is never displayed. He, he's, his justice is not magnified. Mercy is not magnified because after all, there's no other alternative. But in his choosing some and not others, it, it puts on display the, the justice and mercy of God at the same time. And there's, that's tough. It's, it's tough to think about that. And I don't, I don't have that all figured out either. So, nope. I, it's one of those things. I think when we think we totally figure it out, we, there's probably some part of it we haven't really thought enough through. Yeah. Just Amy and then other Amy, <laughs> Amy King had her hand up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. And I think that's, I think Paul, when we read through Romans 9, I mean, I think he's sensitive to that, that feeling, both of those, um, and, and moves to address those in his argument throughout the course of the book of Romans. So, you know, I think you're in good company there um, to, to the degree that we feel that way. Um, I think the Bible's aware of that and, and addresses it. Um, so, and, and we'll look at some other examples of that. But yeah, for sure, those are two, two good ones. Um, did, were you going to say something, Amy? Right. Yeah. He's good. He's just. He will always do right. He doesn't do things that are, are not fair um, by human terms, especially, which is usually how we measure it. When we think of perfect holiness and perfect purity and perfect love and perfect mercy, all of this gets put on display both in the cross and in the election of some and the non-election of others. Um, both of those get get demonstrated. Okay. Yep. Yes, I have a question because I believe that this is what you're saying. What I understand that if God, you're, what you're saying is God has already elected us before. To me, that's saying that Jesus came down, suffered, and died on the cross for our sins that we all could be saved, not just was in vanquished. Why did he send his son to go through that when he already had somebody to die? Why would he do something? I think he opened that door for everybody 
Right, right. And we all can be saved if we believe he was the son of God, died for our sins, and confess our sins, and then we will live. Right, right. Yep. So I think, yeah, we would say the same thing that Jesus died for everyone's sins, and anyone who would put their faith in Jesus can be saved. So that's true. Yeah, will be saved if, if they put their faith in Jesus. Yeah, they will be saved if they put their faith in Jesus. So the qualifier that we have to bring into play in that scenario is the Bible's teaching on the doctrine of sin. So who will put their faith in Jesus? So who's actually going to, anyone can, but who's actually going to do it? And when they actually do it, where do they get the ability to even do that if the Bible's doctrine on the teaching of sin is true? So, so, right. Right. So we got it from outside intervention. We didn't figure it out on our own. God did something to. Right. 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 That can prepare the heart for that. Sure. Sure. Right. Right. Absolutely. So God orchestrates events to prepare the human heart. Um, he, many different ways. Yep. Right. 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 And so all of that is outside intervention. It's all things you're, you're referring to are God doing something to a person. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's, that's certainly one of the ways to look at it. I mean, I think what I resonate with and what you're saying is the importance to declare the gospel to everybody indiscriminately. And so we're going to say that on Sundays, we're going to, yeah, absolutely. Right. Sure. Because that's the, the means that God determined that it would happen is through the proclamation of the gospel, through people evangelizing, through us persuading sinners to come to Jesus and telling them, turn from your sin, come to Jesus. So that would be one of the things, uh, a problem that this can lead to is if we think that because of election, that is no longer necessary. So that's definitely not true. So even for the believer who is elect, God has determined the only way that 
what he has determined beforehand in all eternity past comes to pass in space and time is through believing the gospel. So election doesn't invalidate the need for the cross. God has said that those whom he, who are going to believe, he has determined, but the way that they come into faith is through the blood of Jesus. That's the only way anybody gets saved is through the blood of Jesus. So, um, so election doesn't invalidate the need for Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And it doesn't invalidate our responsibility to evangelize and to proclaim the gospel and call people to Jesus and set Christ before them. Because we know the way that he saves people is through us proclaiming the gospel. How will they believe if they're not told? And how are they told if they don't hear? And how will they hear if they're not sent and not preached? And, you know, that whole chain. So it's very clear we've, we do have to do that. And so it's the truth of the gospel, the truth of God's word set before people um, that God uses as the agent to save them and to bring them to faith. And so election is trying to answer the question, why does that happen for some people and not others? And um, is it at the end of the day, is the answer because of a totally free, uninfluenced choice that that person made? Or is it because God has so acted upon their hearts to help them see the beauty of the gospel, the wonder of Jesus' sacrifice for their sins, a desire to come to him, to turn from their atheistic ways. And, um, where did all of that even come from? Um, so that's the question that uh, the Bible is, is answering when it talks about these verses about predestined and chosen from before the foundation of the world and, and all of those things. So, yeah, jump in. Mm -hmm. Unless they, unless you're going to rewrite the Bible a little bit to say, well, 
emphasis a little bit of life in us that, that that would enable anyone and everyone to see Jesus. We're almost blind, but that would give us just just a little bit, maybe out of the corner of my eye, to see see Jesus. I'm almost blind. You see, if 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 to have the scars is what sin is, to understand that each one is a miracle of God's grace. Yeah, I want to do two illustrations that might bring some of this together. Because um, there, there's what you're what you're saying right there is important, and um, so I'm gonna come back to that. So the illustration first is uh, used by R.C. Sproul that guys uh, is is the picture of man in sin. Is he he's in the ocean and he's drowning and he's gulping water and he's just about to go under and a ship comes up and tosses him the life preserver and it's just sitting right there and that guy if he wants to die and drown he can die and drown but if he doesn't he's got to grab that thing and if he grabs it he will be saved but it's sitting right there now when i was a, a very informed armenian i would say yes you would uh you would grab that life preserver and when he pulled you up on the on the boat if you got up on the boat and saying, started saying, I saved myself, it would be like, no, you didn't. You, you were going to die if we hadn't given you the opportunity to be saved. So that in the Arminian function, um, salvation is merely the presentation of the opportunity. Um, it's up to the person to say yes or no, to grab the life preserver or not. It's up to him to do it. But we just have to back up and say, fundamentally, what's the assumption under that picture? The assumption is that the man is still alive. He's kicking and screaming, but he's still alive, and he has the ability to grab this thing. But the Bible teaches, rather, in Ephesians chapter 2, Pastor Billy just referenced, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course, not of God, but of this world, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. There's a deep spiritual component that is deeply opposed to God, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of our body and, their, and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. There's a categorical statement. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. So the picture is not he's about to die and he's got to grab the life preserver. Sproul says he is at the bottom of the ocean floor, dead with barnacles growing on him. And Jesus dives in and pulls him up and brings him up and resuscitates him and performs the miracle of raising him back to life. So that's what happens in salvation, is it is a total miracle. Um, the person who's, who's drowning and grabs a life preserver can say, well, I did grab the life preserver. But 
Election pulls the rug out from under us from taking any credit for our salvation when we realized that the, the picture really the Bible presents is that we were dead in trespasses and sins. So how does this happen? Um, so this is, this is not to say that, uh, that God drags people kicking and screaming into the kingdom or something like that. Um, he works through the power of the gospel, opening our eyes to see, raising uh, dead people to life, and um, giving us new hearts and all the, the opposite of Romans 3, all of that stuff. That's what happens in regeneration. Now, I'll, I'll give you another category. So some of you, many of you probably already know this, but you know the acronym TULIP. <laughs> I don't like using acronyms all the time, but... Um, this is a Calvinistic thing uh, that has been helpful, and I think it's helpful in this discussion. Um, so it begins with total depravity, which is what we're saying, what we've been saying here about what the Bible teaches about sin, that all of man's being is depraved, all of it's affected by sin. No one's coming to God on his own. We're dead at the bottom of the ocean. Spiritually, we are 100% opposed to God going our own way. So the next thing is uh, un- conditional election. So this is what we're talking about tonight. And the you in this is just referring to the fact that this is not on the basis of any good in us. This is not as if we were to trace back the argument. So you have Calvinism, Arminianism, this is in the 1500s, but it really goes back further to Augustine and Pelagian, uh, Pelagius. So you have an Augustinian view and a Pelagian view and uh, they were going at it like this as well um, on, on these things. And so the unconditional is saying that there's no condition in man. So there's a, a view called a semi-Pelagian view, which says, well, election is when God looks down the corridors of time and sees who's going to say yes and retroactively chooses him based on his decision that he foresees. So God foresees the decision you're going to make and says, all those people in the future who are going to get saved, I'm electing them, um, which that's kind of hard to, to understand. But what the, even that view is, is tough. But what the Bible is saying is unconditional election, that it's not on the basis. So that you know, Ephesians, where were we? Ephesians 2, not on the basis of works so that no one may boast. There's nothing in us that made God choose us, nothing at all. It was completely and entirely unconditional. Uh, the, uh, the L is limited atonement. Um, the, this is a super complex one. If you want to really read the best treatment of limited atonement, read um, the introduction to uh, J.I. Packer's introduction to the death of death and the death of Christ by John Owen. You don't, you don't have to read Owen. It's complex. But you read Packer's intro to that. That's the best treatment on limited atonement out there. Limited atonement, the most simple way to understand that is that this is an oversimplification, but it's just saying not everybody goes to heaven. The atonement only benefits those who get saved. It's limited to those who get saved. Um, now, it's a lot more than that, but, but for tonight, let's just leave it at that. Now, here's the point that I think would be helpful in what we've been saying is irresistible grace. I want to talk about that one. And the last one is uh, perseverance of the saints. Sometimes we say preservation of the saints. 
irresistible grace. So this is, this is the experience. This is what we most live in, what we feel, what, we, what actually happens in our hearts. What, what, what happens in this category here is that at some point in somebody's life, the Holy Spirit so sets Christ before us and so regenerates the heart and so opens the eyes and changes the affections so that we come to see Jesus as irresistibly attractive and we want to come. Having been, and as, uh, again, I always forget to give the credit for whoever said this, but um, we come willingly having been made willing by the Spirit um, so that no one comes kicking and screaming, but the Spirit so sets Christ before our eyes that he, we come to see him as irresistibly attractive and we can do none other but come and we actually come and get saved. So in, in that, this is what's happening in evangelism. This is why we can evangelize. This, is, this should inform our prayers when we're trying to reach out to family members and coworkers. Oh God, set Christ before this person's eyes in a way that is irresistibly attractive that they would leave their sins and come running to Jesus. And then we tell them, like we do in the pulpit, run to Jesus. Why will you die? Come, put your faith in Jesus. Stop living for yourself. Turn from your sins. Repent and trust Jesus today. He will have you as his own. That offer is extended freely to everyone in this room. Turn and come to Jesus, right? We, we preach the gospel sounding almost like you might think, well, that sounds Arminian. No, that's just biblical. That's just biblical. Uh, Jesus himself, again, anyone may enter, he said. Anyone can enter. But we know that once they enter, here, so here's the second illustration, is, um, you know, we use these things, we've used these things for 20 years. I feel like everybody's already heard that. Um, yeah, the, the door, the door into heaven, you know, written on the outside of the door is whosoever will may enter. Whosoever will. That's what's written on the outside. People are passing by, broad is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the way that leads to eternal life. People are walking by that door, dying every day, not even seeing it. But whosoever will may enter. And then all of a sudden, one day, you're walking by and you go, oh, I've never even seen that before. I'll, wow. Okay, well, let's, let's go. And then you go in and you realize, oh my gosh, I just got saved. And now you're in God's family. And as you turn and look at the backside of the door, it says, chosen from the foundation of the world. So the, it, what that illustration does is it captures the universality of the offer to all. But what happened at this point in that analogy? Whoa, huh. Did I all of a sudden just get smart? Did I, like what happened there? The Holy Spirit turned my attention to see something that I had not seen previously. That's what he's doing in salvation. That's what he's doing in the proclamation of the gospel. That's how he draws people in. Once, once they come in and they begin to read the Bible, then we start to encounter things like chosen from the foundations of the world in the beginning of Ephesians. And we go, oh, what an amazing mystery that this grace has come to me. So um, one, more, one more bit on that. Um, so some might feel like, um, that in saying all of this, that our choices are not real. So, uh, I think 
I don't know if Grudem gets into it in, in baby Grudem, but maybe he does in, in little Grudem. Um, but um, the Bible is constantly bringing us to a point of a decision about something like choose, choose you this day whom you will serve. Um, but this objection that, well, that if God is already elected, then our choices aren't really genuine. Our choices aren't real. Um, so this objection says if God chose us to come to him, and that's why we come to him, then we didn't make a real choice, but rather we were forced or even duped into believing in Christ rather than coming to a decision of our own free will. So this is where there, an attempt is being made to preserve a sense of free will for man. Now, again, on free will, as I said earlier, um, do we believe in free will? Absolutely. We freely choose sin every chance we get. Totally free. Um, there is no such thing as absolute free will except in God himself. Think about that. So if I say, I'm going to stand on this roof and jump off because I'm free to fly. Well, there's another law at work called the law of gravity, and it's going to pull me down and I'm going to hurt myself. So I'm, I'm free, but I'm constrained by certain laws. I can't be in two places at once. I can't hear two people talk at once, ask my wife, describe our dinner table. <laughs> What's going on? Uh, I, you know, we're, we're not... I would love to do more things that I do, but we are not absolutely free beings. Only God is absolutely free. So our freedom, our free will is constrained by certain limitations. That's just true in, in natural life, but it's true spiritually. So what, by what law is, the free, is our will constrained, spiritually speaking? What's the law of sin and death? Meaning, are our wills free? Yes, constrained by the law of sin and death meaning we will always choose to go our own way until God acts upon our heart to so change our hearts to draw us to Christ and to open our eyes to see the gospel and understand it and run to Jesus and actually be saved. Um, so until that intervention takes place, yeah, our, our will is totally free and yet constrained. But going back to the idea there, um, foundationally, the assumption behind the argument is that for a choice to be genuine, it must be absolutely free and not in any way caused by God. But in that case, I would ask even the Arminian, is this person's, I would ask myself 25 years ago, is this person's choice really not in any way caused by God? And if you believe God's role was merely influence and not election, then doesn't this rob you of being able to make an absolutely free choice? It still isn't absolutely free. I mean, somebody's got to proclaim the gospel to you. Somebody's got to explain it. There's still, there, there's still outside action happening on you that brings you to this point of decision. So it's an attempt to preserve an absolutely free will, but that's our free will is constrained by the law of sin and the work of the spirit in salvation. And so God, God is operating. So our, our understanding of how free the human will is has to be biblically informed. Um, doesn't mean we make involuntary choices. We do exactly what we want to do. But in salvation, God changes those desires so that we come willingly, having been made willing by the spirit. Um, so that does not mean um, that, you know, that's why we, we don't believe in, in fatalism. Um, fatalism is as a, you know, I think it was, uh, that, um, I can't remember his name, Sovereign Grace Pastor 
from El Paso from years ago. He said, fatalism is a, a you fall down the stairs and you get up and say, oh, I'm glad I got that over with. Um, that, that's fatalism. The Bible does not, does not teach that. Um, it, it does not mean that God is mechanical, that he's not personal and loving. Remember, God is a personal God. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's in the Bible. We totally and 100% believe that. Ezekiel 33:11 on your sheet, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? So when we think of election, we need to think of those verses too. The, the pleading heart of God for sinners. Now, God knows if they're going to choose or not. God knows if, he, if they're elect or not. We don't. But we should not let that turn our view of God into, into this mechanistic, robotic God who just doesn't care because he's already determined it ahead of time. That's not the view of the Bible. It's, you see it right there as a, as a really good example. Um, okay, so... Let me pause there and we'll open it up for some questions. What are you thinking about now? Yeah, yeah. It's it's our tendency to want to look for credit, you know, where, where we can and to feel like um, I've got an airtight argument and I can get it all making sense. I mean, that, that's where I was as an Arminian was um, um, I felt like I had my my argument tight. It, lo it logically flowed. It had a few holes that Alice Brown could find. Um, <laughs> But at the end of the day, I was not doing justice to the key verses in the Bible. So the, there, there were key verses that I was not really grappling with. And, I, and so I sat there and I said, well, this argument looks great on paper, but I don't know what to do with that. I, you know, so I've either got to square my argument to that, or I've, I've got to do something with the Bible to make it fit my argument. And that's dangerous. So, um, and that's, that you're right. I mean, that's just such a, a human tendency to want to do that. Yeah. Amy or somebody over here. Yeah, Charisma. So something I struggle with, and it's more a, a human point of view, but I think, you know, God creating people knowing ahead of 
separate from God mm-hmm. and worship in hell. I was talking to Thomas about this earlier. I told him I prayed for so much and I was like, Lord, let's get this thing out of me. Because as as a mother, if I knew that my next child were to reject God, I knew ahead of time that he was going to reject God, reject the faith, reject Jesus. Would he even would he choose to still have that child? And that's kind of what my thinking, I know you're human thinking, but why would God intentionally create human beings if we know are going to reject him? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah, that, um, you know, so there's, like you pointed out, Charisma, I mean, there's a hypotheticalness to the question because we don't know, but to say, to say we don't know is, uh, is more powerful and helpful than you may realize in this case. So let me try to illustrate it this way. So there's a lot of things like that and questions we can ask that, that we don't know, that fall in this category of that. And then there's the whole bo- the, uh, body of knowledge that we have in the pages of scripture. So there's a, there are aspects about this that like, we don't know who God has chosen. Um, so that we can't even begin to answer the question, right? Uh, the same, so like in evangelism, I don't, I don't know who God has chosen. Don't, don't have a clue. We don't have like a black light that can illuminate an E on people's chests when you, you know. But we do know that the Bible says to evangelize indiscriminately to all and that God has people that he's going to save. And we don't know who they are, but we're going to evangelize. We're going to go to Nepal. We're going to proclaim the gospel. We're going to obey and we're going to trust God to do what he's promised to do here and not live in the question mark of, yeah, but what if, but, but I don't know who's elect, but I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't, you know, and, and so we don't want to live here. We can acknowledge that there are questions here, but as soon as we do that, say, well, I don't know that, but what, what do I know? And then come back to this and, um, and root ourselves in here. So in, it, it means that this category does exist and it's okay to be comfortable with there's a category of this that we just say, I don't know. But what do I know that I can come back to? Um, so, yeah, Amy? Our inner flesh, and 
Right. 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 Because you just treat Yep, and that's, I think that's what R Romans 9 is, is getting at, is um, the way he even describes it, to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy that he prepared beforehand. In other words, um, compassion is what should result from the doctrine of election, not arrogance, right? Humility, compassion, brokenheartedness, um, that we, we recognize what sin deserves and but for the grace of God, I would get that too. And so our, Paul, Paul's heart breaks over his own people who are rejecting Christ. His heart breaks over it. And he's the one that's clearly proclaiming the doctrine of election in Romans 9. I mean, we could spend like five sessions just on Romans 9, 10. I mean, there, there's so much in Romans 9. But the, the point is... Um, it should produce this compassion and sensitivity and brokenheartedness and not arrogance. And, um, and then I wanted to mention like something you said and, and that Jan said, speaking of like, you start out saying holiness um, is well, like, we, we will never fully understand it. And then you talked about the justice of God and um, a helpful phrase when we think about those categories is these things flow out of the eternal perfection of God. God is eternally perfect in all that he does. And so what happens when sin bumps into eternal perfection? Um, justice ensues. Um, what happens when sin bumps into eternal perfection and the cross lands right in between them? Mercy happens because God is perfectly merciful. So there are these aspects of God that we, you know, to take us back to election, why does the cross land in someone's life who is a sinner bumping into eternal perfection, but not land in someone else's life? God must determine, I mean, the Bible tells us, because God determines beforehand um, that he will do this, that he will do this act, recognizing that none of us deserve it. No one should he, he, could, he could save no one, and he would be perfectly just in doing so. Um, he could save no one, and he would be perfectly just in doing so. So, 
That's a wrestling point. So saving some and not others, as uncomfortable as that feels to our own sense of fairness, um, saving some and not others allows justice to still be magnified. God is glorified when his justice is poured out and God's mercy is magnified. Justice is magnified, mercy is magnified. Um, if God saved no one, certainly his justice would be on display, but his mercy would not. If he saved everyone, his mercy might be on display, but his justice would not be. But in saving some and not others, both his mercy and his justice are put on display. Romans 3, so that he might be proven to be both the just and the justifier of him who has faith in Christ. Okay, let me do get to uh, Jesse first, and then I'll go to yours. Yeah. I explain the question. Well, yeah, so good question. But the first half of the question, um, justice and mercy, I would say, come together in Jesus. Because on the cross, when he's bearing the penalty for sin, God's justice is being poured out on Jesus. So the cross is the, the, the satisfaction of God's justice against his just wrath against sin. So we see justice at the cross. And yet, in the mystery of God, in the wonder and genius of God, that same event is the means by which mercy gets poured out. Because all that put their faith in what Jesus did in taking the penalty for their sin on his behalf, everyone who puts their faith in Jesus receives mercy. Um, so justice and mercy, I would say, come together in Jesus. Now, temporally, chronologically, which took place first? The Bible tells us both chosen before the foundation of the world and the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. So. The, the question assumes a linear timeline, but when we talk about those things, we're dealing in the category of infinity. We're dealing in the category of eternity. So what came first? Well, first is a chronological assumption at, at, at base. So that one, I, I, don't, I don't know that we can say uh, which one came first because the, the Bible just tells us we were chosen before the foundation of the world and the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. That makes sense? Yeah, it's so it's that's right. I mean, because we only can conceive of temporal things, a, a linear timeline. When we're dealing with God, we're talking about eternity. Yeah. So God, uh, Irenio asked me the other day, does, or maybe it was Brandon um, Sykes, uh, does God see all of time as one single snapshot? because he exists outside of time and created time itself. And so, yeah, I think the answer is yes. So he can say outside of time, before the foundations of the world, um, the lamb was slain and he, and he chose. Um, so when, yeah, I don't know when. It, eternity past is, is kind of the answer. I mean, you okay. know, Right. So you're taking us back to here. Yeah. And That's it. That he is the only omniscient. We are not we are not completely to know 
yeah, we can, we have the Bible, we can come to conclusions based on what's there, but there's still going to remain this body of questions here. Yeah. Yeah, how are we defining good? So we, we have to come back to that eternal perfection. Um, not good as we define it, not fairness as we define it, but what does absolute eternal perfection demand when somebody transgresses that perfection by breaking that law? Um, creates a new category. I think Pastor Billy was going to say something. The which one? Yeah, yeah. Good, good. Yeah, I mean, you look, that's fundamentally, that's, that is the foundation for what we're talking about tonight is, is man kicking and screaming at the surface of the water and was tossed a life preserver or is he dead at the bottom of the ocean? Which image does the Bible portray of man apart from God's intervention through the spirit, through the gospel, through Jesus? Pastor Billy? Good one. And we're not going to stop praying and we're not going to stop sharing the gospel with them because ultimately we don't know who God has chosen and who he hasn't. And that's the application. Yes. Oh. 
Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. That, yeah, that's what I was going to say. So don't, yeah. Right. Right. We're not God. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the application for parenting, isn't it? I mean, we, we should not be, we should not, I mean, it's okay. Obviously it's natural for the question to cross our mind, but we shouldn't sit around asking, is my child elect? That, that's not a question the Bible calls us to ask. We should be putting the gospel in front of them because we know going back to the five things that we're here to picture pretending is still here. We know that irresistible grace is how God's going to do it. He's going to set the gospel and Christ before them in a way that draws them to him. So I'm going to set the gospel of Christ before them and ask the spirit to do the miracle that only he can do. So that's where we want to, we want to live. Um, the Bible never calls us to what's that? If, if they must go to hell, may it be with my arms wrapped about their feet as they go. Like, I, I'm going to, you know, we're not going to obsess over who's elect and who's not and think that, well, God's got his list. And um, elect, the doctrine of election moves us to worship, going back to what Pastor Billy says. The, the point of it is to remind us how dark and depraved we were in our sin, how neat, how much a miracle was needed, how necessary a miracle was to bring us to life. And yet that's the miracle that Jesus did. And why he did that for us and not others, we will never understand except what the Bible tells us, election. He, because he freely chooses whom he will and he will save whom he will. And um, that should move us to worship. It should compel us to evangelize. Yeah, that's the yeah, sure. <laughs> yeah, same here. Yep. So many good things. Serve the devil and serve the truth. Then, oh my child, I can't control the devil. 
Yeah. Yeah. And Yeah, that's it. And, and, you know, like, do we choose? Absolutely, we do choose. But we have to ask, how did we come to choose? Um, when what the Bible says about us being indebted sin is true. If it's true, how did we come to choose? That's a great quote there. I've got another one by R.C. Sproul, and we can close with this. He says, no foreseen actions in the elect, of the elect cause them to be elect or provide grounds for their election. The conditions for salvation or justification are indeed met by the believer with repentance, faith, choice, all that. But they are met because God provides these conditions for them by his sovereign grace. And praise God that he does. Um, so not based on any condition in us that would predispose God to electing us. It's truly, truly his sovereign grace. Okay, let's wrap it up. I'll close this in prayer. Um, be happy to engage in if you have more questions um, after the meeting. So, all right, let's pray. Lord, we, we do just stand amazed at this when we think of really the picture the Bible presents about sin. What, what hope do we have? Oh, we, we need your grace. We need, we need a miracle. And for every believer in here, that's exactly what you've provided. And oh, how we're thankful. Oh, how we marvel. We, we don't understand it. We, that's why I keep coming back to the song, Oh, what an amazing mystery that this grace has come to me. We're amazed by the mystery of your grace. It's a mystery. And we, we just step back and bow and thank you and give you all the glory for our salvation. We give it all to you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good, tough stuff. Next week, Pastor Billy will do a lesson on the resurrection. Um, and then after that, we'll do the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and spiritual gifts and all of that. So hope you keep coming back and lots more good stuff.